You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, this evening we'll be continuing our series back in the book of Galatians. And we began this series back in March, about eight months ago. And I hope at this point you're familiar a little bit with the book and what the book is all about. In one word, the book is all about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Paul is defending that the gospel is by faith apart from works. And as soon as you add any type of work, any type of your goodness, any type of religion, any type of tradition, anything outside of faith alone, you have lost the gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness is come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So unless you're prepared to say that the death of Christ was for absolutely nothing and meant absolutely nothing, then you have to admit that, that righteousness comes only through faith alone. Because if you believe it's faith plus works, then you just said that Christ died for nothing. It is faith alone. If you want a gospel that is not by faith alone, you will have to tear the book of Galatians out of your Bible. But you can't stop there, because you'll have to tear out Romans, and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and First. In fact, you'll have to tear, tear out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. You'll have to go through the entire New Testament and tear it out. And then you're left with the Old Testament. But guess what you'll find when you look at the Old Testament? You'll find that God gives a law that no one ever keeps. <laughs> That no one in the Old Testament is ever saved on their own merits. It's never their goodness that saves them. It is always those who put their faith in God to redeem them. They look forward toward Redeemer coming. They look forward toward the cross. We look back, but it is only by faith that anybody has ever been saved. And so that is the point that Paul is trying to make in in Galatians chapters 1 to 4. He says, (laughs) salvation, faith alone. So we get to Galatians chapter 5, and the question is asked, how then should we live? Now that we've put our faith and trust in Christ, how should we live? And we, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Jews, they would think that the only restrainer of people doing evil things is the law and the punishment of the law. And so if you remove that fear, then people are just going to do whatever they want. They have now freedom. Paul, in fact, Paul says, In Galatians 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. And so he says, you have freedom. And so the question is asked, well, if people are saved by faith alone, apart from the law, that means they can do anything they want with their freedom. And the answer is, I guess they could, but they won't. Because those who have put their faith and trust understand what their sin is. They understand how loving their God is, how wonderful Christ is. They understand those things. And so now that, that, that love that they have for Christ because he loved them first and their understanding of the gospel will prompt them to now want to live it out. Now that doesn't mean that Christians are perfect. We're absolutely not. In fact, we fail all the time and Paul is dealing with that. We still have our flesh. We still fail, but we have a motivation greater than fear to do right. We have the motivation of love. And so what I want to do tonight is I want you to see where all of this is leading. And and we've talked the last few weeks about the one key of Christian freedom. And what I want to do tonight is I want to let you in a little bit on my my thinking as I prepare these sermons. 
And I'll give you some insight into what I was thinking about. So a couple months ago, I knew I was getting ready to do Galatians chapter 5. And as I studied the, the chapter, it became very apparent to me, even more so than ever before, that Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, is one of the most essential verses in the Bible for any Christian. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking by the Spirit is absolutely essential for every Christian. And so then I thought to myself, well, the truth is, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26 are one passage. It's very difficult to, sep- to separate them. And so I could try to cover Galatians 5, 13 to 26 in one week, because that would make sense with the text. But then I thought, <laughs> There's, I could go that way, but have you ever, like, you've heard a truth and then it just... You know it's right, but then it kind of just slips by you, and then you leave. And I realized that, at least for myself, for my own heart and life, that verse was so great that somebody like me would need to preach it many, many, many times before it finally got through to myself and maybe to you. And so I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to find a way to stretch this out, because that truth is so good that, that <laughs> hey, maybe I'm not the greatest preacher, but you are going to hear it many times before we're done. And so this will mark the fifth sermon in that, in that text, and there'll be at least two more to go. And really, I want you to get a hold of that one truth. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so what we're going to see is, what we've been seeing is, that the flesh produces evil, destructive things, and that the Spirit, when you walk by Him, produces wonderful fruit in your life. And so, we'll look tonight at Galatians 5.16. We'll jump down to 19, and then we'll get into our text in verse 22. 5.16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like, of the which I tell you before, as I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? Walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here's a list of the lust of the flesh. This is what we see in ourselves before Christ came into our lives. And this, these are some of the things we still battle with because our, we still have our flesh. And then he, he says in verse 22, But, this is the most wonderful buts in the Bible, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Here is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what happens when a believer who is indwelled by the Spirit chooses to purposely walk beside the Spirit every day of their life, that this fruit is produced. And if you remember from last time, there are a few things that we need to know about that fruit. And the first thing is the fruit is singular. They should be growing up separately together and not separately. Now, I had a couple of people after last time say, come up to me and say, Dan, don't you find that some people just seem to generally be good at some things and, and worse at other things? And that's true. There are some people that have natural temperaments toward one thing or the other. But here he's not dealing with our natural temperament. Okay? There, there are some people that are naturally more patient or maybe naturally more self-control or they're more naturally kind. And, and that is, I guess, how God designed them. That is their personality. Maybe that's a result of some of their circumstances. But it's so important that we get that the fruit is singular because what he's saying is you can't just say, I have a natural temperament towards kindness, and so look at the Spirit's work in my life. I'm so kind. 
It's like, yeah, you have, you have a degree of kindness that is just natural to you, but that is not the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you want to see if you have the fruit of the Spirit, we need to look at this whole list and then judge ourselves by that. It is a great litmus test for the Christian to see how we're doing. If you want to look at what you should have in your life, if you're growing in Christ, it is not one thing or the other. It is these nine things growing up together. So the fruit is singular. The second thing is the fruit is real. It's not fake fruit. We don't staple this fruit onto our lives. And the picture that we drew is imagine if you were an apple farmer and you, it really frustrated you here in Ontario that you only had like the one part of the year that you could grow fruit. And so you just started in the wintertime drawing pictures of apples and stapling on the apple tree. It'd be, it'd be pretty foolish. You'd look at that farmer and you'd wonder um, why they're still farming and not in a special hospital. Um, that's where they should be because it's crazy. It's nuts. And, and this is the truth. God thinks that you are nuts when you try to do the impossible when he has provided you everything you, knew, you need to have the real thing. How crazy is it that Christians look at this list and they go, oh, you know, other people, I want them to see that I'm, I'm a good, growing Christian, and so I'm going to staple some of these characteristics onto my life. When God looks at you, he says, you're just trying to pretend you're patient when you're not. When inside, you're still fuming. You're trying to pretend you're kind and loving when you're not. You're doing those things to be seen of men. How crazy is it to pretend when he says, you have the Spirit of God inside of you, and if you were just to walk by the Spirit then Spirit would naturally produce those things in your life. And how wonderful it would be to have all those fruit growing up together naturally. The staples, they, they eventually start to hurt. You can't pretend forever. And even if you do, what good does it cause? I mean, what good is it if somebody beside you thinks you're doing pretty well when God knows your heart? We're so crazy to be fooling each other and never thinking about our Father in Heaven and, and the relationship that, that He wants to have with us that we can have with him if we would just walk by the Spirit. So we need to understand that the fruit, it's real fruit. This is not a fake thing. It's not a a masquerade. This is real. The last thing we need to remember about the fruit is that fruit is not a respecter of persons, meaning it is not for the best of the best. It is not for the most spiritual. It is not for those in ministry. It is not for the missionary This fruit is for every Christian. Everybody who's indwelt by the Spirit of God should naturally be bringing forth this fruit if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, if they're walking by the Spirit. That is the natural progression of every Christian. And so every single one of us should be growing up this fruit in our lives. Not, Not one person. I mean, certainly some of us have had more years for growth, but all of us are are growing the same fruit. It's not the other Christian, it's you. And so let's personalize this. Let's, rather than, than thinking, oh yeah, it's great to know that this is what marks a Christian in my mind, let's say, okay, let's, let's, let's really look at our lives and, and see how are we doing in these areas. Are we growing? Are we walking by the Spirit? Do we see what's supposed to be happening, happening in our lives as believers? So a few weeks ago, we got into the first three fruits of the Spirit. We spoke about love, and joy, and peace. And we saw that these were attitudes of the heart, and how wonderful it would be if our lives were marked by love, and joy, and peace. can't imagine three greater things to mark your life. Love, and joy, and peace. And these are the attitudes of the heart, and we think about it, it, it seems very obvious to us that they are born from an intimate relationship with God. In other words, 
I don't think as a Christian you can imagine having a whole lot of love outside of a relationship with God that is prompting that love. And so why do we love? We love because Christ first loved us. And so all of his love for us is all the motivation we'd ever need for the love for the brethren. And so it's born out of that relationship. The, the joy, I mean, anybody on, in this world, apart from Christ, would say it is difficult, it is impossible to have joy in difficult circumstances. You go through trials, you go through blindness, you go through everybody hating you, persecuting you. Those things, they hurt. And, and most people in the right mind would say, no, you, sh- you shouldn't have joy in those circumstances because for them, circumstances direct their joy. But for the Christian, our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is, is in knowing that we know Christ, that he loves us, that, that we understand adoption, that we've been adopted into the family of God by the creator of the universe, even after our sin, that he loves us so much. And so there is great joy in knowing that we have that God and that that God is in control and that he's doing these things, not, not to hurt us, but for our good and for his glory, that we have this more eternal perspectives that allows us to have true joy. Love, joy, and peace. Not peace, not saying that everybody around you is going to be peaceful and your, all your relationships will always be peaceful, but saying that there is peace between you and God, that you can have, your soul can have rest, knowing that, that you know God, that you'll be with him forever, that your home eternally is secure. There's peace. There's peace in knowing that he is in control. And so these these three attributes that are um, attitudes of your heart, it's fairly easy to see how they're born out of a relationship with God. But I think as we get to the next few attributes, we'll say there are more attitudes that we have when we have relationships with other people. And I want us to understand that, that the foundation of these attitudes that we have need to be just as much founded in our relationship with God as those first three other things. And so he continues, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. Long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And we're going to talk a little bit about what those are tonight. And so I'm going to go through five things for each of them. We will see what it is, what it is not, where it is commanded, where it is exemplified, and how it is possible. So we look at peace, uh, peace, patience, or long-suffering. So what is patience or long-suffering? John Calvin said this. He said, patience refers to the quality of mind that disposes us to take everything in good and not to be easily offended. So patience is that just being in that mindset where you're not looking for difficulty, you're not looking for trouble, you're taking things the right way, you're not easily offended. Tim Keller said that it's the ability to face trouble without blowing up or lashing out. Hey, you, a roadblock's put in your way, there's some friction in your life, there's some difficulty you face, and so rather than lashing out and blowing up and, and making this a big issue, you just continue on. You, you're, you're okay. You don't need to react that way. Patience is the ability to put up with other people even when that is not an easy thing to do. Patience is the ability to put up with difficult circumstances even though it's much easier to react in anger or frustration. It's patience. What it is not. Patience is not simply biting your tongue when you're boiling inside. And I think sometimes we, we get that. But that, that's the stapled on patience. That's like, okay, people are around me, and so if I overreact, they're going to think poorly of me, and so I have this, this rage and anger boiling up inside, but I'm going to bite my tongue. 
I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't. There is some self-control in biting your tongue. That, that's not a bad thing. But true patience, the fruit of the Spirit, is not that we're just biting our tongue, but that we're, we're seeing the good. We're seeing the bigger picture. It is not being apathetic toward people. I think sometimes people almost, they check out, and so things don't bother them that might bother other people, but it's because they're just apathetic toward those people or those things. Like, I, I don't even, I don't really care, whatever, you cut in, li- in line, whatever, it's not a big deal. Um, that's not true patience, okay? And so patience, it's, it's us having an inner, I guess, peace that allows us to just not lash out. Where it is commanded, look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. And I'm going to be doing a lot of verses in the next little while, so you can flip really quickly. If you want to do that, that's great. But otherwise, you write them down and check them out later. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And this is something that Paul says over and over again, that Christians are now to walk worthy. Okay, and you need to understand that. If you're a believer in Christ, there is a, a, a responsibility that you have to be an ambassador for Christ, to walk as a person of God, to be holy because God is holy. You have a responsibility in your life, so walk worthy. Verse 2 says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. It's commanded in Scripture. You need to be long-suffering. You need to walk worthy, and part of walking worthy is adopting this attitude of long-suffering toward other people. You're willing to suffer long. We see it exemplified many, many times in Scripture. So many times it's exemplified to us by God. And I just want to bring one interesting time that it was exemplified for us in the book of Hosea. And if you know the book of Hosea, it's a very, very unique, interesting book. The prophet Hosea is commanded to marry a wife who is a prostitute. She's a prostitute. And so he says, go take this woman, go take Gomer, make her your wife. And so Hosea does it. He has some kids, and then and eventually Gomer falls back into that old lifestyle. She goes back to prostitution, and so now Hosea has to go, and he has to get money and his barley together, everything he's got, and go buy his wife out of prostitution once again. And all of this, this story was symbolic of God's relationship with Israel, that originally he pulled Israel out of idolatry. Abraham was an idolater. And so he, he brings them, he makes them his own, he makes them his, his people, but then over and over and over again they fall back into idolatry, back to serve other gods. And we understand our God is a jealous God. He, that, he hates that. And so he's showing this picture of how God, even though Israel has over and over again failed him and fallen back into idolatry, that he still loves them and he brings them back and he makes them his wife. Even at great cost to himself, he's willing to make them his people once again. Now, for, for God, the cost was the cross, sending his son. So here's some verses in Hosea that are very interesting. And it's God speaking about his relationship with Israel. He says in chapter 11, verse 8, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? And how sh- shall I set thee as Zeboam? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. And that whole idea, how, how shall I give thee up? It's, he's, God is purposely deciding to be long-suffering toward Israel. 
Now, this is a very, very extreme example. And you're thinking probably, I have trouble with patients every day, but it's usually not like a, an entire nation of people that have turned against me. Okay? But do you understand that God's extreme example here provides us a pattern of how we're supposed to deal with problems, deal with people that are against us? Um, we need to learn to exercise patience, and we have opportunities every day to do that. We, first of all, must not think of ourselves. It, usually we're being impatient because we're thinking of ourselves. It, it's, it's really hard to suffer long for somebody else when you don't ever want to suffer. It's all about you. You must not think of yourself first. You must not react in anger or vengeance. And you must show the love and the patience that God has shown to us. I'll tell you something, if, if we could learn to be long-suffering as a, as a church, if you could learn to be long-suffering as a family, it would make such a big difference. We realize how huge this is. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, How be it for this cause I have t- obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Did you catch what he said there? He said, he showed me long-suffering. But the long-suffering that he showed to me was not just to me. It's a pattern that happens to everybody else who comes to Christ. He showed us incredible long-suffering when he sent his son to die for us. He showed us incredible long-suffering when he let us live in our sin for so long before we finally saw the truth and and accepted him as Savior. Christ has been long-suffering to you. That is enough reason for us to be long-suffering to any little thing that comes in our way. Peter, same kind of thing to say. He said, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men come slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That idea of being long-suffering to usward is sometimes not even quoted when that verse is quoted, that he's long-suffering, but it's, it is really important to understand that, that it is his long-suffering that is the reason he's not willing that any should perish. He's patient with us, because he has every reason to be willing that we should perish. That's what we deserve. But instead, he shows us patience. He shows us long-suffering. In 2 Peter 3.15, an account the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It's the long-suffering of Christ that is our salvation. So how is it possible? If, that, if those are the examples, of the ultimate example of long-suffering is found in God's long-suffering toward his people, toward you. How is it possible then in our lives? Well, let me read you Paul's prayer for the Colossians. It said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Again, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And again, there's the fruit. It should be fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Did you get what he said there? He said, you will be strengthened. This is my prayer for you, Colossians, that you will be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. So how is it ever going to happen? It's going to happen when we have his glorious power working in our lives to produce patience and long-suffering. It's not going to happen from just our resolve. Our flesh is never going to be long-suffering by itself. We need his glorious power. And we find his power when we walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. You will never, you will never be long-suffering when you're not walking by the Spirit. Truly long-suffering. It just can't happen. 
The only person in this universe has the ability to be long-suffering is God. And so the only way you will be long-suffering is when God is working his power in you. That's it. We've got to be walking by the Spirit. Walking with the Spirit. Number two, gentleness or kindness. I guess this is number five. But for this evening, this is number two. What it is, gentleness, kindness, it is to serve others practically in ways that make me vulnerable. Being kind is being friendly, it's being considerate, it's being generous. It was said that the ministry of kindness is a ministry which may be achieved by all men, rich and poor, learned and illiterate. Brilliance of mind and capacity for deep thinking has rendered great service to humanity. But by themselves, they are unable to dry a tear or mend a broken heart. Don't underestimate the power of kindness. Another man named Faber said, Kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. I certainly understand that it, that it is not our kindness that converts somebody. But I'm telling you, when, when people see true gentleness and kindness in our lives, it is unique. It is special. It is different. And so it's that kindness that, that maybe brings people in. And in that, God uses that to draw people to himself because they see not you and not your flesh. They see the beauty of the kindness of God working through you. Kindness is essential. And so that's what it is. What it is not. It is not false flattery. It is not pretentious public actions of generosity. So kindness is not me writing a big check to some organization and then letting the, the newspaper know that I did it so they'll publish how, how incredibly generous and kind I am. Okay? Kindness is not me telling you how wonderful you are because I want you to think better of me. Kindness is not when I do an action in front of a group of people so that they'll clap for me, but really I know in my heart I'm doing it because I just love the clapping. I love it when people look well of, think well of me. That's not kindness. Kindness is... it's returning the kindness that God has shown you to others. Where it's commanded in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on therefore the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Ephesians 4, 32, be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. It's commanded many, many times in Scripture. Believers in Christ should be kind people. It's exemplified for us, once again, in Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible is so honest about who we were? I mean, really. That's not a message that anybody wants to hear. Uh, well, this is, this is who we were. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures. In other words, we just let our flesh control us. We were living in malice and envy. We were hateful and hating one another. It's really bad news there. That's us. But after that, imagine that. After that, 
the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And, and really, that verse that we love to quote, it's so obvious in the context, right? Not by works of righteousness, obviously, because that's not who we were. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving to our lusts, right? It's not our righteousness. It's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is the kindness and love of God. That is, that is where we see the ultimate example of kindness. He was being kind to people who were so unkind to him. And he loved them. And so kindness here is not just this, oh yeah, you're just a sweet person. It is, it is an a obvious, real act of sacrifice on behalf of someone else. It's kindness. One man named Jobert said, a part of kindness consists in loving people more than they deserve. I think that's very true. I think sometimes we think it's just our responsibility to be as kind as somebody's been to us. And that's not true. Because that was true, there would be no gospel. How it is possible. Okay, so that's what it is. It's commanded of us. We know Christ did it. We should try and be like Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. So we just read verses 3 to 5. Let's see what he said the two verses before that. He said, put them, speaking about the Cretan believers, the believers in Crete. He said, put them in mind to be subject to principalities, to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to do every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle. It's the same word. Be gentle, be kind, showing all meekness unto all men. So what he's doing there is he's telling them what to do, and then he says, and the reason for we ourselves were sometimes foolish. Do you, get, do you get how the whole thing now fits together? So, so how do we do it? How, do we, how is this even possible? Well, it's possible because he commanded of us after he did it for us. And so all of the power of the command comes from the action that he took toward us. Um, I think we have this crazy idea, uh, and I don't know, I don't know why, because it some, seems to be something that, that Christians, unfortunately, seem to hang on to a little bit. And that is, we see our culture kind of, changing what it means to be a man. You know, like, men should be able to play with dolls and that kind of stuff. It's, it's not a big deal. And so we have one part of our culture that's, like, almost encouraging men to be effeminate. And then we have another part of our culture that's saying, no, no, we got to be, men have shotguns, and, you know, they, they fight, and they're tough, and that's what it means to be a man. And, and we understand as Christians, both of those characteristics are wrong. Okay? It's, those aren't what it means to be a man. Do you know what it means to be a man? It means to be gentle, like Christ. I mean, he is the epitome of a man, and he is the epitome of gentleness. Kindness to those who could offer him nothing. Kindness to children. Kindness to women. Think about the Samaritan woman. What kindness he showed to her. Did she deserve any of that? The disciples thought he was crazy for speaking to a woman who is not only, she's a woman, and you're not supposed to speak to women, let alone to a Samaritan. We hate Samaritans. Let alone a Samaritan who has had five husbands. How could you be kind to such a wicked, awful Samaritan woman? He was incredibly kind to her. That's gentleness. Uh, to the woman caught in adultery, his kindness toward her. To lepers, touching them. To the sick. I mean, you go on and on. You look at his ministry, and his ministry is a ministry of kindness. Was Jesus a man? Is he gentle? Yes. Manliness is not being able to fly off the handle. It is not 
pounding your chest. It is not being hard or mean, but being kind and gentle. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Put in all things, approving ourselves the ministers of God. So, but in all things, we're supposed to be approving ourselves the ministers of God. We're supposed to be proving that we are a servant of God. How do we do that? Well, verse 6 says, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost. You see how it, it all ends up fitting there? I mean, you can't, you can't do the kindness without the Holy Ghost. You can't do the long-suffering without the Holy Ghost. All of it's impossible. And so, ultimately, how do we get the strength and the power to be kind? We walk by the Spirit. You might get tired of that phrase. I hope you don't. It's a wonderful phrase. Walk by the Spirit. Number three, goodness. Having integrity. Being a good man, a good woman, a man or woman of integrity. That's what it is. It's moral uprightness. Doing what is right and kind and loving, no matter what the consequence, and without regard to the audience. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to me, I'm going to do what's right, what's true, what is loving. It doesn't matter what's going to happen, what, what, who is watching or what my circumstance or whether I'm all by myself on my computer or whether I'm in a closet, or whether I'm in front of millions of people and they're all going to laugh at me. I don't care. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to have integrity. That is goodness. Being a morally upright person, no matter who is watching. I guess understanding that, that our only audience that matters is our Savior. And so living as though we're living in front of Him all the time. That's what it is. What it is not, it's not hypocrisy. It's not being phony. It's not that we recognize that qualities are good but we never practice them. So it's not a mending in church. It's not agreeing with the Bible and then acting or living a different way. That's not what goodness it is. And it's even worse not only practicing them when it's beneficial to you. It's not being good because everybody's watching or be, being good because somehow that's going to get you a, a promotion or a raise or something like that. It's not a selfish act. Where it is commanded, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3, the integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you. And I love how Paul is praying. These are the things that Paul prays for for his people. So if you ever want to know what to pray for for people in this church, just look at some of the lists that Paul prayed for for people in the churches that he started. So here's a prayer, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. So this is God's goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you get what he said there? He said, we want it so that you fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. We want you to fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness. And so his goodness is here. Now it's your job to start fulfilling that, to take part in that, to to live that out so that other people see his goodness in you, his integrity, his moral uprightness. Again, it's exemplified in Jesus. And listen, we could go everywhere and find this. There is never a place in the New Testament where we find Jesus not being good. Not doing what's right, what's morally upright. It always cost him something. You have his servants, and what marks the great servants of the Bible is, is those who did what was right when it was difficult. Some of us were, were good until it costs us something. That's an awful way to be because you're tested on the battlefront. And if that's where you fail, then who cares what you 
pretended to be in all the practice or, or in all the training, when you get to the point where it's going to cost you, that's where it matters. And so that's where we'd be good. That's where he's exemplified. How is it possible? Well, I want to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 19. They're really neat verses, and I think you'll get where I'm going with this. He says, Beware of false prophets. This is Jesus speaking, the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good, that's that word, that the, the word good there is the word where we get the word goodness. Every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So here he's giving this analogy, and he's saying, here's these Pharisees on the outside, they seem really impressive, but on the inside they are evil, wicked fruit. They're not bringing forth good fruit. You can know them by their, their fruits. Now, he compares it, say, he says they're an evil tree. So it's not just the fruit that's the problem, it's the tree that's the problem. And then he says, people who are good bring forth good fruit. Now, who is good? Who has the ability outside of Jesus Christ to be good? Nobody. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. Right? I mean, there's... There's nobody that is a good tree by themselves. But what he says is, once somebody is a good tree, once they've been washed by the blood of Christ, once they've been um, declared righteous and made righteous by Christ, then they're good and they should bring forth good fruit. And so how do we do this? Well, first of all, we, we accept Christ as our Savior. We get saved. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That is the most essential part, because before that happens, then goodness is impossible. You can't get good things from an evil, evil tree. Even if you do, it's just stapled on fruit. You need to have the, the tree in place, the good tree. The only good tree that you can ever be is the good tree that happens when you have the Holy Ghost inside of you. And so that is how this works. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. It's that simple. And so until our hearts are right with God, there will never be good fruit. We are the vine, he is the branches. So we must be connected to him. We must be connected to the good vine to bring forth good fruit in our tree. I'm going to stop tonight. I'm going to wrap things up. Um, I know, I guess it was a little bit longer tonight. Um, the truth is, I actually read a quote when I was reading, when I was studying for this. It was a 19th century pastor and theologian. His name was Edward Beecher. And he said, There is not such thing as preaching patience into people unless the sermon is so long they have to practice it while they hear. <laughs> so if you're impatient, hey, this is your opportunity. You're welcome. So far, we've seen love, we've seen joy, we've seen peace, we've seen long-suffering, we've seen gentleness, we've seen goodness. These are things that ought to characterize the life of every believer. They, they might not be there in their full growth at this point in your life. You're, this, is, this is progressive sanctification, but they should be happening in all of our lives. You should be growing in these areas. There should be more and more fruit. This is a great litmus test for Christians. 
And sometimes I think what happens is we, we recognize we have the Spirit in our life, and all we want from the Spirit is exactly what the Corinthians did. All we want is gifts. God, make me good at something. Let me be a great teacher. Let me be, you know, a great whatever thing that you wish you were more great at. You want your spirit's gifts. You know what we really need? I mean, before the gifts. I'm not saying gifts are important. I mean, it'd be foolish to say that. The spirit gives the gifts as well. But what we all need is fruit. The Corinthians, they had gifts. They had no fruit. And the church was a mess. We need the fruit in our lives. And the fruit only comes when we walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, it is walking with the Spirit. It is a relationship with Him. You can't say you're walking by the Spirit unless you're, you're praying, you're in communion with Him, you're reading His Word, you're allowing the Spirit to work in your life, you're being obedient to the Spirit when He convicts you, you're, you're looking for opportunities, and the Spirit's showing you opportunities to evangelize and to show kindness and love. And that's when you're walking by the Spirit. It's just walking with God. It's being in relationship with Him. And so we must be walking by the Spirit because until we're doing those things, it'll just be fake. Everything we do will be fake. It'll be hard. It'll be impossible for us. And it's just a, a waste. The Spirit endues us with power to overcome our flesh and produce fruit that is pleasing to God. Doesn't that seem something, seem like something that is worth doing with your life? I hope it does. Let's close with these verses from John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Let's pray.